This is the Liberty and Law Podcast, where Utah Assistant Attorney General for Constitutional Defense and legal scholar Jeff Teichert offers unique insight into the relationship between law and liberty in history, politics, and American life. If you have a passion for liberty, you are in the right place. Opinions expressed on this podcast are his own and do not reflect the positions of the Attorney General or the State of Utah. Hello, lovers of liberty, and welcome to another edition of the Liberty and Law podcast. This is Jeff Teichert. I am your host, and I have a person that is becoming something of a frequent guest on the program, Adam Lamparello, a professor of law at Georgia College. And uh, we have an interesting topic for you today. We want to talk about the European Union. And uh, just so you know, we have not conferred about this uh, prior to showing up. So the responses we're going to be giving and talking about are, are pretty much um, our own uh, without a lot of conferring yet. I also want to say that when I was at uh, George Washington University getting my LLM 100 years ago, well, 20 years ago, um, I did a paper actually for a course that I took at Georgetown. I was allowed to take courses over there too from a very prominent constitutional scholar named Mark Tushnet. And I wrote a paper called The United States of Europe, Citadel of Peace, Tower of Babel, or House of Cards. And uh, the paper, as I reviewed it to before we uh, came on this broadcast, is 107 pages long. And uh, the, the portion that I reviewed in preparation for this uh, presentation is probably 20 pages uh, worth of that. It's such a big subject that there's no way we could really cover it all in this uh, short time we're gonna spend together. Uh, we may in the future, if people like this episode, uh, come back and discuss it in more detail or discuss, you know, take particular parts of it and talk about it. I want to begin with a quote from Prime Minister Churchill, which he gave in a 1946 speech at Zurich University. And he said, what is this sovereign remedy? It is to create the European family or as much of it as we can and provide it with a kind of structure under which it can dwell in peace in safety and in freedom. We must build a kind of United States of Europe. In this way only will hundreds of millions of toilers be able to regain the simple joys and hopes which makes life worth living. Now, I, I wanna point out that I, I, my understanding of this is that Churchill had this opinion about continental Europe, but he didn't necessarily want Britain to be a part of the United States of Europe. In any case, um, Adam, I'm gonna throw the question out to you just to begin with. As a general matter, do you think the Euro that European unification is a good idea or a bad idea? I think that it's a bad idea. And I think that the reasons why it's a bad idea are manifesting themselves now. 
I go back to Hamilton and Madison, Federalist 9 and 10, when they warned about the problem of factions mm. or what we would say the curse of nationalism. I think what we're seeing in the European Union now is precisely that. You don't really, the European Union is not very transparent. It's not very democratic. The European Commission is not elected and they have substantial influence in a manner that's very democratic or transparent. So what you're seeing is the rise of nationalism, of factions. And by that, I mean various countries in Europe um, not subscribing to or adhering to the agreements that they uh, initially signed. And, and that does not surprise me at all because unlike the United States, I don't think in Europe there is a common culture or common core set of values that ultimately undergirded, for example, the U.S. Constitution. Not and even a common language. Not even a common language. Yes, exactly. So I think what you're seeing is a misguided attempt by, you know, Europe is filled with so many different cultures from Bulgaria to Belgium, England, France, Croatia that to all of a sudden try to integrate and unify um, without a common core set of values is, is gonna be problematic. I think that's what we're seeing now. And I think that's why we're seeing the rise of the very factions and nationalism that Hamilton and Madison warned against, um, the lack of any transparency or, or democracy. And ultimately, I think that's gonna to lead to problems unless the European Union has a constitutional convention and uh, really settles these issues in, in, in a, way that can successfully integrate Europe? Well, I know that when I wrote my paper back in 2001, at that time, um, I was definitely looking at the, at the EU. And by the way, I, I agree with you. I don't think European unification is realistic or a good idea. But, uh, and then the reasons for that will be more apparent as we talk further. But, but when I wrote the paper back in 2001, uh, one of the strongest critiques of the European Union that I made was that, uh, well, like in Federalist 15, um, Hamilton talked about the importance of majority rule and proportional representation. And while it is true that the European Union, um, the European Parliament, had a certain proportional representation uh, requirement in it in, in the original treaty, as you know, the, the parliament didn't have very much power. And uh, um, Hamilton looked at, at that um, idea of majority rule and proportional representation to be super important. And he, he pointed to the ancient Republic of Lycia uh, Montesquieu also was a big proponent of, of Lycia, and he said, you know, the large cities in that republic had three votes. The middle-sized cities had two votes, and the smaller cities had one vote, closer to the proportional representation formula. Um, as you mentioned, the European Commission has much more power than the parliament does, even, in my opinion, under the Lisbon Treaty, which tried to give the European Parliament more power. But uh, my understanding of the commission is that it more or less requires unanimity, that it's a council of heads of state, and that it can't really do anything without unanimity. And that allows uh, 
the point that you made about factions a minute ago, um, well, imagine Luxembourg decides that they're going to stymie everybody else and what everybody else wants to do. Uh, over time, that's not going to work. And right. I, I think you've seen that. Um, I, I think you've seen that uh, play out. Uh, you know, since since two thousand one. Another another issue, I think. Uh, you also talked about with regard to culture. Another critique that I made, and I'll ask for your thoughts on it, but there is a thing called the European Court of Justice, and but largely European Union law has to be enforced by the member states through the member courts. And of course, that was one of the things that the founders said was wrong with the Articles of Confederation was mm -hmm. that um, you had to enforce it through the states. And a lot of the states would just say, we don't like this or that federal statute. We're not going to follow it. We're not going to enforce it. And I think this is even more of an issue in Europe. Yeah. Um, now, Professor Tushnet, I will say, uh, told me I should look at Canada as, as a better model than the, the Federalist Papers for what's happening in Europe because provincial courts enforce federal, federal law there. The problem with that idea, well, one problem with that idea, in, in my opinion, and I really like Mark Tushnet, although we don't agree on hardly anything, but, yes. but I, I think he's a very smart guy and I, and I like I agree. Him. But uh, anyway, he said that, uh, that Canada was the model. And th the problem I see with that is in Canada, you have English common law throughout all the provinces. All of the courts have basically the same mode of interpreting the law, the same understood rules of construction. I, I mean, now you... you take the same paradigm and move it to Europe. And, you know, in France, you've got a later version of the Napoleonic Code as contrasted with English common law in Great Britain. And, you know, different kind of folkish law in Germany and go, go, go throughout Europe. They all have very different traditions of how you even determine what the law means. And right. so, I think trying to sit, trying to enforce a federation statute through the courts of the member states when they have very different cultures, very different, not only um, cultures in society, but legal cultures and judicial cultures and paradigms. I just think that's a mess. I don't think it's ever gonna work right. And you see the member states in many cases Turn, turning, you know, turning up their noses at certain um, EU law. And in my mind, that's not surprising. What, what is your thought of the European judiciary in, in this respect? Well, let me just say, I think you've hit on a really important point. When the United States um, ratified its, its constitution, it was a nation in its infancy. It's kind of like an organization that was building from the ground up. 
So they had an opportunity to establish basic fundamental core values, both cultural, legal, um, and the like. The same is not true in Europe. These countries obviously have been around for hundreds of years. So when you try to superimpose a centralized government upon countries that have been around for hundreds of years and have their own independent constitutions, cultures, and core values, that's immediately going to create a tension. And part of that tension is it's going to undermine national sovereignty. It's going to be seen as elitist. It's going to lack democratic legitimacy and transparency. It's going to be characterized by centralization and possibly overregulation. All of these things are going to engender um, the ire of these countries with such entrenched values and, and different cultures. And I think you hit on another point, which is um, there's a fundamental lack of, of democratic rule that undergirds the European Union. And that's precisely what leads to the factionalism that Madison uh, warned about. I mean, why should a country agree to something that the European Union dictates if it doesn't want to? And what enforcement power should the European Union have? I don't see that as practical given the cultural uh, different differences, the value differences among its, I believe, 27 member states that stretch from Austria to Bulgaria, to Croatia, to Cyprus, to Denmark, to Finland, to France. Now, as far as the courts go, um, I think that the courts in the European Union, particularly like, for example, the court, the European Court of Human Rights, it obviously embraces a very, let's say, living constitutionalist or leftist yeah. agenda. So why should any member of the European Union abide by any decision with which it disagrees? And how can the court actually enforce those decisions? That's the problem. The problem is that unification is going to come face to face with a culture and value clash. And that's the difference between why the US was able to do what it did and why I believe the EU is not gonna be able to do that to which it aspires. Yeah, I mean, how can you have, say Catholic Italy and, right. and uh, you know, secular uh, the Netherlands uh, coming together and trying to, to arrive at a set of values that are going to work, uh, you know, I'm not suggesting that everybody, that we need religious uniformity, but we have to at least um, be able to agree on the fact that religious rights need to be protected. Well, I completely agree with you. And I think what the European Union has really evolved into is a massive bureaucracy, not a democracy, where the dictates from Brussels are viewed with skepticism and are also um, viewed with resistance because why should the member states uh, adhere to or comply with say decisions from the European Court of Human Rights that are so incongruous with the cultural history and the common values of its country? The US didn't have this problem when it adopted its constitution because there was not a historical record you know, the states, the United States did not exist for hundreds of years when it tried to impose this supranational organization. The European Union is trying to do that, and I think it's going to fail, and I think that's why we saw Brexit, and I understand why, uh, uh, why that happens. Well, it, speaking of Brexit and, and that whole situation, now I don't know if you're familiar with the name Daniel Hannan, uh, but for our listeners, 
He's a member of the House of Lords now. He was a member of the European Parliament, and he ran for the European Parliament in, in England uh, specifically on the platform of, I want to put myself out of a job. I want to get us out of the European Union. Uh, he has made a couple of interesting points about a, a, a lot of the, these ideas about common culture, common legal system, and so forth. And, he, and he's basically said, look, when we talk about the legal and judicial systems, we have more in, and by we, he means that the British have more in common with India than we have our neighbor 30 miles across the English Channel in France, that, that our legal systems are more similar because they, they're both based on English common law. And, right, exactly. And he points the same thing out, you know, about, say, Australia, which is sort of a sister country to England, even though they're as far away on the planet as you can get geographically. And, right. And, and so if, if I were to negotiate a contract on behalf of a client here in the U.S. Uh, with a company in Australia, for example, we would both have a pretty good sense of how that was going to be interpreted. Uh, there are rules of construction under English common law, which we're all familiar with. We understand how legal precedents work. Um, we would have at least, I, I think, a better idea of how that contract is going to apply and be enforced and so forth. And, and that is true whether we are talking about from the US to Australia or from the US to Great Britain. Um, and, you know, I, I just think when you compare Great Britain to Spain, um, the systems are going to be way different, even though geographically they're closer. And, and one of the points that Daniel Hannon has made is we live in a world now where geographic distance has never mattered less. Um, mm. I mean, you and I are recording this podcast uh, 2,000 miles apart. Uh, you're in Georgia, I'm in Utah, and we're talking basically face to face. Right. I can do the same thing with someone in Australia or New Zealand or India or whatever. And, and that is his point that, you know, why do we, or why does Great Britain confine itself to this outdated customs union because of geographic proximity, where geographic proximity has never been less important than it is now? Uh, well, I would argue that geographic proximity does matter in some ways, particularly when it relates to, do you have a common set of values, cultural values, legal norms that enable you to reach decisions in a collaborative and constructive manner? When we're talking about the European Union, you're talking about Croatia, Bulgaria, Austria, Denmark, and Finland, among many other countries that are so different in their cultural norms, common values, and legal systems, that to try to integrate them the way that the European Union has done, namely through centralization, over-regulation, um, arguably um, without sufficient democratic uh, protections and a lack of transparency, that's gonna be destined to fail. And this is the, the, the genius of the founders of the United States was this. They knew that decentralization and federalism and separation of powers was critical to ensuring liberty and to ensuring harmony over a sustainable period. 
The European Union is doing precisely the opposite. They're centralizing, they're over-regulating, they're lacking transparency, they're showing no understanding of different cultures and core values. And as such, this is why you have the rise of what Madison specifically warned against, which is factions. And I suspect it'll be more of the same going forward. You know, we, you mentioned something about democracy a few minutes ago, and I, I was thinking about this. You know, in, in the European Union, the people that hold the real power, as, as we've talked about, are we're talking about the European Commission and then a whole Commission, bunch, right. A whole bunch of Eurocrats that run things. And Daniel Hannon made the point, and I think it's a very appropriate one, that not only are none of those people elected, but in many cases, they were specifically rejected at, in their home countries and voted out of office, and then they get appointed to a position in the, in the EU to carry out policies that they couldn't get a, get, win an election for at home. And uh, I think it's- It, it it's makes no sense point. whatsoever. And it's completely destructive to the very idea that the European Union seeks to accomplish, which is integration. Well, you can't do that without a fundamental agreement on, on core values. You can't do that without um, equality of input, without democratic governance, without decentralization, without respect for diversity. What they're doing here is creating a massive bureaucracy filled with elitists who are over-regulating and not accountable. And it's not surprising that a country such as England, and I suspect more, will say, we don't want anything to do with you. And I understand their position. Right. I, I mean, I, I'm thinking of uh, Herman Van Rompuy, who I believe uh, was president of the European Commission, had been explicitly rejected in an election for prime minister in Belgium. Right. That's like saying that um, Michael Dukakis, who won only the state of Minnesota in the 1988 election, would then be appointed as uh, secretary of state or to some high level position uh, to, to exert influence over a, a public that explicitly rejected it. And that's what breeds into the what they call Euroscepticism. The lack of transparency, the lack of democracy, the rise of the bureaucracy, and the lack of respect for the differences in culture and values is going to lead to the EU's demise. Right. Another, another thing the founders um, talked about in the Federalist Papers or wrote about is this idea that a, a successful federal government has to be able to regulate the people directly as opposed to just regulating the member states. And, and my impression is that the European Union also flunks that test. Now, I know the, the ECJ, uh, European Court of Justice, said in a case called Costa versus Enal that, that uh, their laws were binding on individuals, but I think where they have been having to enforce them through the national governments, uh, it's, its success is, is mixed at best. Uh, I know in England, they had concerns about, about um, the idea that they, they thought it was a bigger affront to their sovereignty to have the EU trying to regulate their government than having, than having them try to regulate uh, their individual citizens. Well, I think that that's the problem that you see in the Federalist Papers and why the United States has been successful in establishing a, su a sustainable government is, is through decentralization. I'll just give a, a, an easy example. Imagine if you and I made a decision about the question of abortion and we decided 
that women should have the right to access abortion in the first trimester. And we tried to impose that ruling on Iran or Pakistan. What they would say is, I don't care if I'm a member of whatever confederacy or union that I agreed to initially, I'm not following it. Right. And the reason they're not following it is because it's completely inconsistent with their culture. And that's why the European Union has failed to recognize that when you have these clashing cultures, what that the answer to that is not to centralize power. It's not to become a bureaucracy. It's not to put people in power that the people have specifically rejected. It's to decentralize and develop a common core set of values, which they haven't done. Right. Now, in, in all fairness, I, I do understand what Prime Minister Churchill said, you know, he said that, and the Federalist Papers make this point too, that in Europe, there had been a bunch of distinct small countries sharing borders who had had border wars for years and centuries, and, and uh, European countries tended to be imperialist. And of course, that culminated in two world wars, which were very destructive. And which I think really altered the the cultures of the various countries in Europe a lot. Uh, you know, you see very few real monarchies left in Europe uh, since World War II. Um, most of them are figureheads, like in in the UK. Um, having said that, so. I, I don't buy the argument that they made in Europe that, or, or where you know Prime Minister Angela Merkel was talking about how this had to the Lisbon Treaty had to be adopted, or we might find ourselves invading Poland. You know, um, I, I don't know that Europe is of that temper anymore. But having said that. Of course, political architecture does matter. And uh, we had a civil war here in the United States, notwithstanding a fairly strong federal constitution, and it got stronger after that. Uh, states' rights were diminished even more. And so the question is, if we want to avoid what we saw in the Balkans, um, ethnic cleansing and so forth, and, uh, the kind of thing that is, has really plagued Europe for centuries, what is the solution other than political unification? A new constitutional convention. The, the, the state, the countries in Europe need to do what the founders did. They need to develop a unified and core set of values that gets every member nation to buy in. Because without the buy-in, all you're gonna have is a piece of paper espousing all of these different rights and regulations and obligations and responsibilities that people can simply say, well, I'm not following that. You see that in Russia. If you read the Russian constitution, it says wonderful things about respecting differences of opinion and human rights. And then guess what happens? It, it doesn't happen to say the least. The point here is that Unless there's a common core cultural value and culture and values undergirding this unification, then all you're going to have is unification in theory, but not in fact. You know, I think in a, in a sense, um, when we enter into some kind of democratic arrangement, 
uh, it works if the other people living in our society, we have enough in common with them to trust them to govern us. And right. that's the example of Iran that you bring up. You know, you, you can't really uh, say create an Iranian state here in the United States and try to unify with them because the, the values are too different. Uh, right. The cultures are too different. Uh, and, and, you know, you see that. Um, I mean, I like the fact in the United States that Plessy versus Ferguson, separate but equal, was overturned. What is the two-state solution in the Israeli-Palestinian conflict? That's separate but equal. It is basically saying we can't get to real equality before the law. Therefore, we have to have two separate states. Separate them, make them equal, but... Uh, you know, don't try to get them to, to live and be governed together because they're too different. Now, do you see Europe in the same, in the same sort of uh, arrangement where they're kind of agreeing to be governed by people that they don't trust to govern them? Well, the first thing that you have to have is you have to believe that the people with whom you're entering into agreements with are acting in good faith. And what the European Union has shown to its member nations is that it has not acted in good faith. The European Commission is, is lacks complete transparency, is undemocratic, quite elitist, and has through a complex bureaucracy over-regulated to the extent that it's engendered the very skepticism that most would predict. I think that the answer is, is to take a lesson from the founders and from the United States, which is let's limit the European, let's start small. Let's limit the EU's power and have a limited central government to begin with over things that we can all agree. And then let's have a democratic way of amending or revising our constitution as we evolve. But you have to start from a place of good faith and a place um, on limited grounds that all people will agree because it transcends culture and unites people on basic core values. I think the EU tried to do too much too soon and I think it did so in a way that was disrespectful of the values and different cultures of its member nations. And I think what's happening now is that the very skepticism it thought it would avoid is manifesting itself and it will continue to do so until there is a con constitutional convention and the real work done that the founders did to create a decentralized governance that is based on core values. And, and I think it may need to be even more decentralized than what the founders came up with that's true of the diversity of cultures that exist within an area about the size of the continental U.S. Another thing I've thought that I've had is, you know, I think the thing that unified Europe more than anything else in the last, um, well, you know, 70 or 80 years since World War II was the Cold War. Uh, nobody wanted to have the Soviet Union coming in and restructuring their governments the way they did throughout Eastern Europe, you know, East Germany and Poland and go down the, the list. Uh, Romania under the Ceausescu's. Uh, no one wanted to become the next Soviet satellite. So NATO was created to, uh, you know, to create a shield against Soviet aggression. And I think, uh, in, in a way, um, that, that was, they united, but they united for very specific 
purposes and ends. We don't want, we, you know, they, they weren't saying we want to cooperate in every respect, but we, we want to make sure that, that uh, we're protected against Soviet expansionism. And I think, you know, agreements like that, um, sometimes they outlive their usefulness and, and some would argue that NATO did its job and should be mothballed. And I think that's a subject for another day, but, but uh, I mean, Russia is still dangerous to some degree, maybe not expansionist in the way that they used to be. Um, right. Although what they did in the Crimea, you, you could wonder, but. Sure, um, absolutely. Um, well, again, I, I go back to the fact that I think to be successful, the European Union has to do three things. It has to be democratic. It has to be decentralized and it has to be transparent. It has been none of those things. And that is why you are seeing what the skepticism arise, particularly when you have so many different nations with so many different cultures to superimpose and thus infringe on the sovereignty of any nation um, through uh, regulations that are effectuated through a bureaucracy that is not transparent is a rep recipe for disaster. I'll, I'll give another example, and that example is same-sex marriage. Uh, the decision by the U.S. Supreme Court, Obergefell versus Hodges, imposing a requirement on all 50 states to recognize same-sex marriage, just like Roe versus Wade imposed on all 50 states the obligation to recognize uh, a woman's right to access abortion. Regardless of your policy views, whether you're pro-choice, pro-same-sex marriage, you know, I tend to be liberal in my views, but the point is, look at the backlash that Roe and Obergefell have engendered. The same thing is happening in the European Union. They are, they are overreaching in a, in a way that is not transparent nor democratic and that is quite elitist and bureaucratic, and that's why you see these problems. It's, it's really a shame because the European Union could accomplish great things and could accomplish the, uh, could achieve the aspirations to which it, you know, seeks to um, ultimately achieve, but it's not doing that because it's making the very rookie mistakes that uh, ultimately will lead, in my opinion, to its um, demise. You know, it, it strikes me a little bit uh, in this discussion that we've been having that the EU may be the, <laughs> the ultimate manifestation of Woodrow Wilson's desire to, to govern uh, through experts and elites and to put the highly educated people in charge and make, uh, make government function, you know, have government by experts, government by elites. And I mean, I, I saw manifestations of that when I was serving on a city planning commission for a very small city in Northwestern Washington. And all of the policy proposals came out of uh, the planning department. Um, two or three guys who were professional planners with no connection to the community uh, who, who came in, were hired as experts with master's degrees in public administration to tell our city how it should be run. And the planning commission most of the time served as a rubber stamp for whatever they did and put past their recommendations to the city council. I frequently dissented. I'm sure that surprises you, but 
Uh, <laughs> <laughs> wow. Well, it, the EU is government by bureaucrats and government by experts, is it not? Yes, it absolutely is. And that's precisely what's wrong with it. The government that governs best is the one that governs the least. And, and, and I'll quote JFK, ask not what your government can do for you or your country. Ask what you can do for your country. People want to be free. They want the government out of their lives. They don't want the government interfering with the, the decisions that they make on behalf of their children, on behalf of themselves, in their uh, financial affairs. We want to have a limited government that, yes, provides security and that provides infrastructure, among other things. But we don't want a government that's over-regulating us. We don't want a bureaucracy that's not transparent. And we don't want elitists who think they know better and think the citizens are so stupid regulating us. The most recent example of that is Dr. Anthony Fauci, who flip-flops more than anybody that I've ever seen mm -hmm. and who has done such a terrible job on this pandemic. And I can go down the line. Elitists are not the answer because you can have a high IQ. But that doesn't mean you have common sense. You can have a high IQ. It doesn't mean you have good judgment. What elitists do is they think that the average person is lower than them, and they rule uh, in a way that is so fundamentally anti-democratic and so regulatory that it alienates people. And you're seeing that in the EU by analogy. It's going to alienate the member nations. And that's why I supported Brexit. And I support a more decentralized EU that shares and establishes common values around which all nations can unite. One of, the, one of the things I think is fascinating about this discussion is, um, you know, we take somebody like Stephen Hawking, who, uh, brilliant physicist, you know, I, I'm not going to say he's not brilliant, but when he talks about religious theology, he's a moron. He doesn't right. know what he's talking about. I mean, and you, you go down the list of a whole bunch of, of the things he talks about, you know, politics, he's an absolute imbecile. And... Uh, I mean, he, he has the most simplistic sort of first grade understanding, and, and he believes because he's brilliant that he also, that he's brilliant about everything, and he's not. Um, no, and that's the thing about elitists. Elitists often go to very fancy schools and grow up with a silver spoon in their mouth, but do they really know what's going on on the ground in New York and New Hampshire. Do they really know how average people are struggling in Washington and Wisconsin or Connecticut and California? No, they don't because they don't care. And that is the problem that centralization poses. It empowers these people to make decisions that do not have the best interests of the people at heart and ultimately affect people in a very negative way. And the EU is doing that on a grand scale because it's not respecting the culture and core values of its member states. I mean, when it comes to religion, how could you possibly not acknowledge the differences in the religious values of all of these member states? Yet the European Court of Human Rights is gonna make decisions affecting religious liberty. It makes no sense. It can't sustain itself. It should be rejected. I, I don't remember the name of the bureaucrat who uh, said when they, were, when they were getting together for the Lisbon Treaty in 2009 that that this was their Philadelphia moment and compared himself to Thomas Jefferson. Um, oh, really? Which I think is interesting because uh, Jefferson wasn't there in Philadelphia at the time. <laughs> and, uh, right. and, you know, I think if this was their Philadelphia moment, if they thought, hey, we're going to create a United States of Europe like they created, a, you know, in the United States, 
um, you would think that one of these brilliant experts would have thought to pick up the Federalist Papers and, you know, learn from where we started in the United States at how you put together a successful federation, because they are making almost every mistake that is suggested in the Federalist Papers. That's exactly right. And the reason that they don't consult the Federalist Papers or learn from history is because they don't care, because they're narcissistic. They care about themselves and about helping their fellow elites. And they don't care at all about the average person. And that's precisely what's wrong with government. Government should be for the people. It shouldn't be for the elites. And if you think that bureaucrats or elites should be governing a country, I would challenge you to go to your local Department of Motor Vehicles your local emergency room or, or your local public school, and you will see the results of technocracy and bureaucracy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so, so I, I think in, in a way, the European Union is an example, number one, of what not to do. Um, and number two, I think in, in a way, saying what we've said about the, the EU uh, it's almost an unavoidable conclusion, I think, that um, Woodrow Wilson's, you know, grand experiment was was really uh, ill-conceived, and I, I would like, frankly, to look at the uh, to, to to take another look at at democracy in the United States, and. I'd like to reclaim our country back and our states back from the professional bureaucrats um, who are who are running things. Uh, I agree. And I voted for. I completely agree with you. And I think the way to do that first is to recognize the value of the average working class person and value their voice in democracy. And how do you do that? We have to get rid of money in politics. Money has such a pernicious effect and is so protective of elitists and incumbents that it drowns out the voices of the average person. I think you also have to have a check on disinformation that is propagated by the media. The media, for example, CNN. I have never seen a news channel so biased and disseminate such false information, along with, for example, social media, Facebook and Twitter, censoring conservative voices um, arbitrarily. This is anathema to democracy. Democracy should be about the common core value of respecting everyone's voice and respecting diversity of opinion and creating a marketplace of ideas in which people can make informed decisions. And I think the American people have a lot more common sense. And I think the people in Europe have a lot more common sense than the elitists here in America and the elitists uh, in the European Union. Once again, take one look at Dr. Fauci. If that's who you want governing you, well, then I, then I suspect that you don't know what democracy is and that you don't have any common sense either. Yeah, well, I mean, Dr. Fauci is a good example of, of what I've been talking about as well, that uh, he may be an expert in a particular field, but, but a statesman realizes that when he is uh, feeding the widow, he may be starving the orphan. And- Well, that's that, true. And- the only thing I'd add is, uh, look at the United States Supreme Court. Why were nine unelected life tenure judges passing judgment on whether there's a right to abortion or same-sex marriage or assisted suicide in uh, Washington versus Glucksburg? What, what qualifies them to make that decision? The same thing as 
affecting the EU. You have people making decisions that are purportedly binding countries that have different values that disagree with them and that aren't enforceable. And they shouldn't be enforceable because you don't rule from the top down, you rule from the bottom up. Well, and speaking of, of getting the politics out of money, I think the best way to do that is to get the money, sorry, get the money out of politics is to get the politics out of money. Uh, as long as people can become rich uh, by lobbying and, and currying favor with the right politicians, they will always be buying and selling politicians and they'll find a way around whatever reforms you try to make. And in fact, uh, the politicians themselves will pass those campaign finance laws with loopholes a mile wide because they are benefiting from, uh, from that money. And so well, yeah. I think uh, getting the politics out of money will help you get the money out of politics. The other thing I would say about that is, at least in the United States where, you know, politicians are given a lot of money, uh, they have to go to the voters and ask for votes um, after accepting the money. And hopefully that in some way uh, restrains their conduct so that they think, yeah, I'd love to do that for you, Mr. Special Interest but I have to go to my voters in a year and uh, they'll never forgive me if I make that vote. Um, I mean, you know, it doesn't always work perfectly, but, but there is at least an influence there. In Europe, right. it seems like it's gone the completely other direction where, you know, I could take a bribe uh, from my seat of power in the European Union and I don't even have to go to the voters and explain myself. Well, I think you, you raise a great point. And that's something that the EU and the United States currently really has in common. And that is they don't care about the average person. They don't care about the average working class individual who struggles every day. They care, they care about elitists. They are ruled by money and their donors but they're not governing for the average person. The voice of the average person in the EU and the United States has been completely drowned out. And that is a poison to democracy. The whole point of a democracy is for the people to have a voice and they no longer do. And for that reason, we have an existential threat, not only to the EU, but to the United States. Because when the people's voices are ignored, that's when you start to invite the very factionalism the very segregation and the very division that is manifesting in the country today. I think it's, uh, it's fascinating um, when we think about Europe. I mean, for the first hundred years or so of our history, uh, we were proud of the fact that we were not Europe. And Alexander Hamilton called Europe the mistress of the world. And <laughs> They talked about, you know, we want to keep out of all of those wars and conflicts they're having over there. We want, you know, we don't want that imperialism over here in the, on the American continent. You know, there was the Monroe Doctrine, keep your European filthiness out of our neighborhood. And, and but things really changed, I believe, in the early 1900s when twice we crossed oceans to get involved in European wars of imperialism, uh, and maybe with good reason. I'm not 
I'm not trying to to make an isolationist point here, but well, I will. <laughs> <laughs> I do believe that that um, we ought to be very judicious about how much we're willing to meddle in the affairs of European countries. And uh, frankly, you know, I mean, I, I'd like to see the the UK invited to be part of NAFTA, if not the 51st state. <laughs> um, I would too. I, I would too. And, and there's a couple of states that I would be willing to, um, <laughs> you know, say bye to, um, but I'm not going to name them right now. But I think when you talk about that, I, I agree. I think that the military industrial complex was a real thing. I think Vietnam was a terrible mistake. I think our intervention in Iraq uh, under George W. Bush was a mistake. I think it costs us billions and billions of dollars involving ourselves in these wars that make no sense. I also think that the problem facing the United States right now is from within. And I think if anything is going to destroy this country, it is going to be divisions from within along racial lines and uh, ethnic lines and socioeconomic lines. Because what's happening in this country is that the mainstream media and politicians are propagating a false narrative about identity politics, where everybody is judged based on the color of their skin, not the content of their character, and their membership in a particular racial, ethnic, religious group, by which we stereotype them and say, because you're a white male, you're this. Because you're a black male, you're this. Well, guess what that does? That puts people into groups and creates the very tribes and factionalism that we don't need. There is a core common set of values in this country that we can all unite around. The same can't be said for the EU, but it can be said for the US. And until we get back to that, the vision will continue. And that's a really sad thing. Right. I mean, I, I think uh, one of the things that was special about our country is that it was a melting pot. Um, yes. Now, we haven't had a perfect history. I know we've had, you know, we had slavery and segregation, which are definitely stains on our on our history, but Absolutely. America is more than slavery and Indian slaughter. It, it is a, a core set of principles about uh, the dignity of human beings and how every human being deserves to be treated. And, you know, we fought that out partly in a civil war that cost us a lot um, in blood and treasure. And, yeah, and if you look, go ahead, I'm sorry. Well, I was just gonna say, I think one of the things about America that is special is that idea that we don't need religious uniformity to, to be politically united. We don't need to all be the same skin color. We don't, you know, as long as we have the basic fundamental values that we're signing up to, um, you know, we can be Americans. And I, I think the fragmentation you're talking about is this idea that America isn't a melting pot, it's a salad bowl. And, uh, and I don't agree with that idea. Well, I don't agree with that idea either. I think it's terrible and terribly destructive. But I think that that's what we're starting to become with the way that identity politics has pervaded American society. And I agree with you that one of the greatest things about the United States is the core value that everybody of all backgrounds, of all races, of all ethnicities, of all religions should be accorded equal dignity under the law. And that is, for example, exemplified in the free exercise clause and the establishment clauses of the First Amendment. So the core value is to respect that diversity. 
what the EU is doing is exactly the opposite. They're not respecting the diversity of the member nations. And instead, through a, a lack of transparency and, and a massive bureaucracy trying to impose regulations uh, irrespective of the values of its member nations. And that is precisely the factionalism that is going to lead to its demise. And the factionalism happening in the US today is also gonna lead to its demise because what it's doing is now dividing people into groups and stressing that we're all different and eviscerating those common values. And that's tragic and it needs to change. Yeah, and, and mind you, I have no problem. I grew up partly on the California-Mexico uh, border and I have no problem with immigrants from our Southern neighbor who came here legally. And if, if you wanna bring your, <laughs> If you want to bring your your salsa dancing and your carne asada and other elements of that culture, I'm good with that. Um, I enjoy Mexican food as much as the next guy. Um, and, <laughs> and you know, um, I, I have no problem with all of that. Sign up to our core values, though. But um, that's the difference. They diversity among races, ethnicities, whatever should be respected, but. In a country that's going to be sustainable, across races, there has to be an agreement on a common set of values. And that's what's starting to fracture in America based on the propagation of this identity politics that judges people based on their membership in a group, such as a race, rather than based on them as individuals. And that needs to change. I, I'm with you, certainly, on that point. Um, well, we, you know, there's a lot more we could go into on the European Union, and uh, and I think maybe we should have more, more podcasts on this. Uh, we've covered though some of the the principal theoretical issues about trying to unite a bunch of very diverse countries and cultures under a particular um, super state and the problems that they've had and the trouble that it's caused. And uh, I, I believe um, we've got, you know, we've, what has happened there, what is happening was predictable, in my opinion. And we ought to learn from it and not, you know, not go headlong into the same failed policies that we're seeing over there, European healthcare, European climate targets, go down the list of, of things that, that they're trying to do over there. And, and you know, I, I don't wanna see Georgia become Greece, you know? <laughs> um, <laughs> so I'll give you the last word, Adam. Uh, what do you wanna say about the European Union in conclusion? And, and uh, you know, what, what is your vision for a peaceful and free Europe? You have to value and fundamentally respect the average person. And you have to realize that your role is to help people and to help the people on the ground who are the middle class or the working class and struggling. To do that, you have to do away with the bureaucracy and replace it with a true democracy. You cannot be elitist. You have to decentralize. And you have to understand that without a set of common values, there can be, no, and respect for different cultures, there can be no effective governance. Ultimately, I think the best and most sustainable EU and any other country, whether it be the US, Canada, and any, anywhere else is, are we governing for the average person and allowing their voices to be heard? That's what really matters. And that's why this podcast is called Liberty and Law. 
thank you all for tuning in. If you love liberty, you're in the right place. And uh, we'll catch you all next time.